All right, cool. There's going to be some fill in the blanks and stuff. So um, just kind of like, you know, you'll see as we speak, like how the fill in the blanks will, will flow. So just keep an eye on that sheet right there. Do you want to introduce right. ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think Ryan, I think Ryan is Alex. one more right here. Alex. Hand a stack. Okay. Cool. Um, So welcome everyone. Um, my name is Romano Orlando. I graduated in 2022 and now I'm on part-time staff with Challenge. I work in the biotech industry, but still, um, you know, volunteer with Challenge. This is my wife, Samantha. Yeah, I'm Sam. I also graduated in 2022 from USC with a degree in biomedical engineering. Um, we were both a part of Christian Challenge since we were freshmen, like many of you, and God really changed our lives through that. Um, yeah, so that's that's our intro, and we're excited to talk about just in general relationships and how we can cultivate those. Yeah. So, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, absolutely. So, so we're talking about relationships because relationships, you guys, it's the main reason why people join churches and ministries like Challenge. It's also the main reason people leave churches and ministries like Challenge. Relationships bind families together; they also tear them apart. In general, few things are going to determine the quality of your life more than the quality of your relationships. And in fact, throughout the history of the church, the enemy, the main entity who desires to tear apart Christians, uses isolation as one of his favorite tactics. So Christianity is an inherently relational faith. It's impossible to do in isolation. So what we're going to start out with is family. So does anyone know, maybe any of you STEM majors, do any of you guys know what this is right here? Can anyone name what instrument this is? A spectrometer. Yes, Nicely Lena. done. What up, Lena? <laughs> Fantastic. This is a spectrometer. The, the way that it works is it shines light through a liquid, and depending on how much light makes it to the other side, it determines and it can tell you how concentrated that liquid is, how dark it is. But does anyone know, maybe you STEM majors again, what's the step that's needed before you can run this experiment successfully? Calibration. Nice. There you go, Alex. You have to calibrate the spectrometer. You put in just a blank, a blank sample of water with no chemicals into it um, to determine how much is the water absorbing by itself with nothing added. And you know, as I've thought about the effect of our families um, on our lives, I've come to realize that our families sort of act as that first calibration step as we enter the world. So in your life, your family in the first few years of your life acts as that calibration step. Your family calibrates your life by determining what you perceive as normal. And that's a fill in the blank right there. So just like how the blank water step normalizes the liquid solution before other chemicals are put in, your family normalizes your perspective on the world before other external factors come into play over time. So now, interestingly enough, in a sort of meta manner, your experience with your family has greatly influenced your perspective on your family and on family in general. So what I've noticed is that depending upon a few factors, students' view of family usually lands somewhere between the extremes of two perspectives. Family is everything or family is useless. So we're going to start off with family is everything. So who have we seen that kind of generally believes this? So these are, these are people who come from very tight-knit families. So maybe they did evening dinner together every night. They have loads of holiday traditions. They have this family tradition, that family tradition. Maybe they took a lot of trips together. 
there was just like a loving tightness among that family. And another one, and I relate to this, are those with Catholic backgrounds. Um, so sometimes a Catholic viewpoint can kind of interweave family identity with faith identity. Um, and it's sort of like, well, because I'm in Orlando, I'm a Catholic. And because I'm a Catholic, I'm in Orlando. So those kind of blurred lines can kind of create those very tight-knit identity families. And also trauma together. Um, so some of us maybe even here right now have gone through some pretty difficult things with our families. Um, and the bond that ensues from that can create a very strong sense of duty and responsibility to continue to take care of the family as the years go by. So how do we see this manifest in the lives of college students? Well, the first is if the family is nearby, the frequency with which that student goes home, or if the family isn't nearby, there's like constant phone calls home, maybe sometimes even one to two times per day. So there's this sense that I need to maintain the level of connection with my immediate family in college that I experienced back in high school and back in my childhood. So another way is that if parents say something and it actually doesn't align with God's word, whatever the parent says tends to get overvalued above God's word. So for example, I, I've heard this many times, and my parents say this, education comes first. College is about education. So I need to prioritize my education above all else. But in reality, the Bible says education can come second, but we need to seek God's kingdom first. So who are we going to value? Whose perspective there? So what's the truth that someone kind of more on this extreme needs to realize? Simply that family is absolutely important. There's no denying that. But it is certainly, certainly not everything. Trying to maintain the same level of tight-knit closeness with your parents and siblings that you experienced while you were living there every day during childhood is a pursuit that's going to take up a very large chunk of your time and effort in college and in your life beyond. So a verse to apply here is a pretty strong verse. It's Luke 14, 26. This is a direct quote from Jesus Christ. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. So what Jesus asks of you is that your love in your pursuit of him be so strong in your life that by comparison, if you have a mom and dad, siblings, a spouse, or even children, it appears that you hate them because of how strong your primary love for Jesus Christ is. So that's that first part of their family is everything. Now the next part, family is useless. I hate family. So who generally believes this? On the other end, maybe those who come from fairly dysfunctional families. This is also serious. Um, there could be abuse, whether verbal or emotional. Um, and again, some of us even here right now have maybe experienced some of that. Um, and that can develop a very negative view of your family and a family in general. And also I've seen this, families where there was sort of a religious pressure on the kids, but in a kind of odd way. So it's not really about walking with God and getting to know him, but it's more about like talking the right talk and kind of random rules. Like I remember one family back home just messed up in all sorts of ways. And the mom's main rule was no lucky charms in the house because lucky is sinful and we can't have luck in the house. And it's like, your son is literally on drugs and you're worried about your box of cereal. So I've kind of seen that, like a kind of odd, like religious pressure and kind of things going on there. And finally, guilt. 
Um, so the fuel that a lot of families run on is guilt um, rather than love. You don't call home enough. You don't love us enough. You don't spend enough time with us. You don't care about us enough, etc., etc. So those can develop very negative views of family. So how does this manifest in the lives of students? Well, primarily in the way that they speak to and about their families in a sort of like harsh tone. My mom is such a blank. My family is so, hmm. I've heard a lot fill in the blanks there over the years. This way they speak about their family. In general, there's kind of a distrust maybe towards authority, uh, towards their family, towards stuff their parents say. Um, and also an avoidance. This is pretty common in our culture today. There's an expression of, I'm never getting married. I'm never having kids. I don't want family in my life. I don't want anything to do with it. So something which should be reserved for God to decide about your life, who, when, if marriage and kids are coming, um, just a complete avoidance. I don't want it. Even if God wants me to have it, I don't want it. So what's the truth to realize kind of on that extreme? God does not make mistakes. You have control over a lot of the decisions in your life, but the family which you were born into, you have no control over. You had zero say into it. It is a completely sovereign decision by God. Even if it was a broken, pressurized, random religious rules or guilt-fueled situation, God wants to redeem your family and redeem your view of your family and of what a family could look like in general. And the verse to apply here that I put is Psalm 139, 15 through 16. And it states, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them ever came to be. God knows your family situation and he is ready to work with you on redeeming it in your life. So now the next step after realizing how has your family shaped and calibrated, just like the spectrometer, your perspective on family and your perspective on life in general, you can ask, well, what does the Bible say about family? Because once you learn what scripture has to say, this is also a fill in the blank here, you have the unique opportunity to filter your upbringing through the Bible, not the Bible through your upbringing. You're going to filter your upbringing through the Bible, not the Bible through your upbringing. So one specific perspective I'd like to hone in on is found in a subtle difference between Ephesians 6.1 and Exodus 20.12. So this one, you're going to have to listen to me here on this. I don't think it's on the sheet. So Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So it compels children to, to what? Their parents. What is it? Obey. That's right. Absolutely. But Exodus 20.12 says this, Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So in Exodus 20.12, when God is speaking to all of Israel, not just children, he, com he commands them to what? Their parents. Again, what is it? Honor. Honor. That's right. So children are commanded to obey their parents while adults are commanded to honor their parents. It's a subtle word choice with massive implications. So how does this play out? First is advice. So these are also more fill in the blanks here. Children must follow advice from their parents, while adults should consider advice from their parents. 
Proverbs 15, 22 states, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Your family has known you longer than you've even known you. <laughs> they may not know God as well as you'd like them to, but asking advice from someone who has seen all parts of your life and knows all of your intricacies and wirings can be extremely helpful. So the next is time. Children are required to spend time with family. Adults should convey a desire to spend time with family. So Elliot had mentioned this one earlier today. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 states, So we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives as well. So does it delight you to spend time with your family? So imagine saying to your mom, you know, mom, um, I don't really want to spend time with you, uh, but I'm forced by my faith in Christ to spend time with those who I dislike. And so I was wondering, uh, are you free for dinner this weekend? <laughs> and she's not going to jump for joy at her little son or daughter saying that. Um, that would not go over well. You honor your parents by showing that you desire relationship with them, not that you're forced into a relationship with them. And last year, we have serving. Children have chores that they must do. Adults should seek ways to serve parents. John 13, 35 states, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As a kid, chores are, are your way of serving. And if you don't do them, you're generally punished, probably pretty immediately. As an adult, there's no immediate punishment for not helping out. You know, you're not as compelled or expected to help out as when you were a kid. So it shifts from being required to being a choice. Will you serve your parents? You know, will you spend time with your dad, helping him with that project or with your mom preparing that holiday meal? When dinner is done, do you just immediately go and sit on the couch and start watching TV? Or do you actually help clean up the table to bless your family as well? By serving parents, you honor them. So finally, wrap up family with this. Raise your hand here. Any of you, if you have a family member in, in any of your family who refuses to speak to another family member. I know I have that. Holding that firm conviction is completely incompatible with following Christ. I just want to wrap up saying that. It should never be a part of any of our lives at any time. God never, never completely shuts off another human being and neither should we. Boundaries, limits, yes, that's understandable. But completely cutting off another person in your family, refusing to speak to them, is incompatible with following Christ. Matthew 23, 24 through 24 states, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So with that, I'll kick it over to Sam. Awesome. That was so good. Okay, so we're going to talk about friends next. Uh, so before we look at what God says about a godly friendship, I want to just step back and say, why is wisdom in this area even important? This may seem very simple. Your first point, your family is chosen by God, but your friends are chosen by you. Simple, obvious, we all know that, right? But how often are we rec recognizing the responsibility God has given us to steward our friendships? I think that if we see here, we've been given a choice, right? God has ordained our family, but our friends, that's up to us. If we've been given a choice, the next natural conclusion is that we can make a wise one or we can make 
a poor decision here. We have a choice. So we want to know what God says about that. And also some verses in scripture in Proverbs, Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So I think we see here that there is a potential upside to friends, like a great upside as we see in Proverbs 18.24, that a friend can stick closer than a brother. But also, if we're not wise about the decision and we associate with people that are foolish, we will become like them. We become like those we associate with. So I think my goal here before we get into what godly friendships can look like is just to exhort you not to become passive about this process in your life. Don't be passive about your friendships. Be proactive. It is such a gift. Friendships can bring so much to your life. And honestly, there's such a huge reward that Proverbs talks about that God outlines for us in friendships. But also, we can really falter and really go walk away from God because of our friends. So now with that, I want to look at what God says about friendships with the story of David and Jonathan in the Bible. So David, you may have heard of him. He was a shepherd in the nation of Israel. And his, his, at the time in Israel, the ruler was named Saul. And Saul had a son, and his name was Jonathan. Jonathan was a strong and fierce warrior. And so you probably have heard of the story of David and Goliath. So there was a man named Goliath. He was part of the Philistines nation there, and they were going against Israel. He said, I will fight one person from Israel. Give me your one fiercest warrior. Everyone looked at Goliath, this super strong, he was almost like a giant. No one wanted to go against him. But David, he had faith in God. He was very, not very intimidating, but he trusted in God and he went against Goliath and God helped him to prevail. So immediately after this fight, David is brought to Saul, brought to speak to the king of Israel. And Jonathan overhears this conversation. And in 1 Samuel 18.1, it says as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul so this leads us to our next point God's desire for you is to have friends with whom your hearts are knit together this is the potential of friendship um, the Bible uses just such beautiful words to convey that a soul is being knit to another that's not easily undone and when you think about someone's soul being knit to another, they're intri intricately connected with that person. Their successes are, are their friend's successes are also their su successes. Um, so I want to talk about just what are truths we see from their story about what heart level friendship can look like. And I think the first is how do we even develop this heart level friendship? Um, so when I was in high school, I ran cross country, and through that time, I developed really, really close friends. So I started off, and we started the season. We became friends over our shared love of running, and we connect while we run and talk, and we run in races together, right? But over the course of the season, those friendships grew a lot, a lot deeper. We endured a lot together. We pushed each other on. So I think the first thing here is heart-level friends share the same mission in life. With my experience in cross-country, 
it's a basic one to help illustrate that me with my friends in cross country, we became so close because we were on the same team. We shared the same mission. What, what started out as just a friendship over a love for running really grew deeper because we had the same purpose. We wanted to see our high school win the race and to win the league. And those friends still last to this day. And so I think that can be found with David and Jonathan too. They shared the same mission in life, but on paper, they were very different. They didn't become friends because of shared interests or hobbies or experiences. That's often how we filter our friendships. That's often how we associate ourselves. But David, on the other hand, a shepherd boy, the youngest son of a man named Jesse in Israel, he came from really humble means. But Jonathan, the son of the king at the time, he was talked about in scripture as being a strong and fierce warrior, was armed in most amazing armor. And David looked nothing like that. They didn't have really anything in common except for one thing, their love for God, their devotion to God, that they were both courageous and making their life be about following him. And so that's why David, why Jonathan saw what David did and he was immediately drawn to him. Why the verse in scripture says their souls were knit together. So I think that's where we see here that heart level friends really share the same mission in life. And I talked about cross country, but really that, that was just an example to help illustrate that we are on the same team and we grew close. But the greatest mission you can be about is loving and glorifying God, just as David and Jonathan did. And so the greatest and deepest friendships you can find are with other people who are about that in their life, who are headed in that direction and want to know God and make him known. And so let's go farther in the story of David and Jonathan. So after David defeats Goliath, he begins to see more and more successes in his life. The people of Israel love him. And what happens next? Saul, the king at the time, becomes very jealous and decides that he wants to kill him. Um, so Jonathan, Saul's son, gets wind of this and wants to stop him. One time he convinced his father, said, please don't kill David. This is not right. And Saul calms down. Another time, Jonathan helps David to flee from Saul. And Saul is become so angry that he actually tries to kill his own son because of that. So that brings us to our next point. Heart level friends sacrifice themselves for the good of their friends. Jonathan risked his own relationship with his father and really his own life to, to take care of his friend. He knew that his, his father was in the wrong for wanting to kill David. And so he sacrificed himself. We might not often find ourselves in a situation with our friends that we're going to put our own life on the line for them, but we can be thinking about how can we in little ways and in big ways be sacrificing ourselves for our friends. This is how you can grow closer with each other. In John 15, 13, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus really set the ultimate example of love for paying for all of our sins so we could be in relationship with him. And when we do this, we become more like Christ. And so let's keep going in the story. So Saul still wants to kill David and is now chasing him with his army. And David is fleeing and running all around. And you can imagine he's probably really discouraged. This is where a lot of the Psalms come for that 
come from in the, in the Bible that David is crying out to God, God, deliver me from my enemies. So he's discouraged and he's fleeing from Saul. And in 1 Samuel 23, 16, uh, Jonathan finds David and it says, And Saul's, Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Jonathan told David, Do not fear. Do not fear. God will help you. He will not leave you. And you will, he, you will prevail against Saul. That's what Jonathan said to him. He helped him to find strength in God. And that's our last point, that heart-level friends spur each other on in their walks with Christ. I think Jonathan was there, knew exactly what David needed, and he had the opportunity to give him that strength that he needed in that moment. Honestly, walking with God, we need other people, and we need our friends to spur, spur us on in that. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, that's, that's all I have on friends. Just my encouragement that we want to be wise. There's true friendships bring life to the soul. And you guys can have that as you look to cultivate that. Look to Grow in your walk with Christ and find other friends that are doing that and really sacrifice yourself, sacrifice yourself for them and spur them on in their walks with Christ. Now we're going to touch on roommates. Um, so when I started college, I don't know if many of you were the same, but I think with roommates, I had one perspective and then God kind of taught me something different, especially as I lived with eight other girls in a really small place with one fridge and God really showed me a lot with my roommates um one fridge uh it was great it was awesome but I think before that maybe you guys relate I think I was just hoping for roommates that in a sense we didn't really inconvenience each other almost it was like we wouldn't we don't notice each other that would be like the a successful roommate situation that you know, you kept your side of the room clean. You did your dishes. I didn't notice that. You maybe didn't wake me up in the morning or night. Like we got along well, but you didn't really burden me. I think that's why I was like, okay, I just want to live well with my roommate. I think that would be the goal. But there's honestly so much more to living with roommates than just that. And maybe you can relate. And God taught me some of this. So your first point is living with roommates is one of the great greatest opportunities college students have for sanctification. And so our second point too is sanctification is the process by which we become like Christ. It means literally to become more holy and that is who Christ is. And this is actually God's will for us. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So living with roommates is one of the greatest opportunities college students have for sanctification. I think few people get a closer look at each other's lives than roommates. Um, you know, when you go home, you feel like it's a place that you can finally let your guard down and just breathe. I think for me, that's where like the good, but also the bad and really the ugly can come out. You just, you feel like you can be yourself and you're around each other so much. You see so much more than you know, your friends who you see on the weekend or your professors or classmates, you have such a great opportunity with roommates to be around them. And I think it's twofold with, with our sanctification. 
to be able to touch the needs of another person and care for them, and also to be sharpened and help have someone bring other things out in you to show you the ways that your actions affect them and how you can grow. They have better insight into your life than anyone else. So I want you to see the opportunity you have there. And I'm gonna touch on just three ways you can grow through your roommate relationships. I think there are a lot, but I'll just talk about these three. So you have a table here. The first Christ-like quality that you can grow in is being attentive to others' needs. And so the, the skill that I think can help you to grow into this is awareness. So awareness helps you to see the needs of those around you and also to understand how your actions affect others, right? But if you're just coming home and you're just too busy, you go straight to your room and close your door, you won't have any idea what's going on with your roommates, how maybe how they're doing, how your actions are affecting them. You won't know if they're struggling um, and they won't know that for you too. Um, and so you can maybe find yourself in a situation where you're not sensitive to your roommate's wirings. If you're like me, I, I have a goal with my home that I think finally my, my home, a place to have so many people over. Some of you are like, oh no, my home, a place to finally be alone, right? But if I never took the time to get, my, get to know my roommates and understand their wirings, there'd be no room for consideration, no room for compromise in the midst of that. And then also, we all go through a lot in life and your roommates can see better than other people. We can really put ourselves together when we go to an event, we come to challenge, but your roommates can see a lot of what's going on in your life and as you can for them, you have the opportunity as Jesus did to touch the needs of another's heart, to know how they're doing and be aware of that and, and help them with that. So that's our first point. And the next skill is sacrificing yourself to meet others' needs. And the skill that comes with that is intentionality. That's when something has to be done and you just act on that. But I think the necessary first step is awareness because it, intention without proper awareness, without understanding and direction is just useless. But if you're just aware and you see that something is going on in, with your roommates, um, that there's maybe a conflict between your roommates, if you have no intention to try to help them with that or do anything about it, what good is that? So we really need intentionality. James 1.22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So I wanna help illustrate how this has come together for me, the combination of awareness and intentionality. Um, so awareness, right? Like how did I try to live this out with my roommates? I lived with a lot of girls, but you can still not really see each other. You can go to your room and close the door. So I would just like actively kind of go around and knock on doors of my roommates and just want to check in, say, how are you doing? What's going on? And one time I was doing that with a friend, one of my roommates, and I just got subtle hints through talking to her. She didn't really say it outright, but I could pick up that she was struggling with something. She was having a hard time. So I was aware of that. That was the first step. And I put myself in a position that I could be aware of that. And then second is I went and found some other roommates and I also wanted them to be aware. I didn't know if they would know. So I said, hey, this roommate is going through something. Maybe just look out for her, look to try to encourage her. And then we also prayed for her in that moment. 
And then through that, she really felt loved by us and felt like she could be safe to share what was going on with her. And we could carry that burden with her. We could be just like, be the hands and feet of Jesus just to our roommates there. So that's an example of how Oh, you need awareness, but you also have to have intentionality to follow through and have that space in your life to do that. And then lastly, super important with roommates, the, the Christ-like quality is that he maintains clear relationships. And one skill you can have to grow in this is forgiveness. This is both in, in extending and also receiving forgiveness. Forgiveness is when you have done something wrong and you need, to, you need to fess up to that, explain your fault, and really ask them to forgive you, ask them to cancel that debt. And so I think my encouragement is that it's super normal to have this happen, to be with your roommates and there to be so many miscommunications. You're around each other a lot. There's so many opportunities for withdrawals. And also if you're applying the first two and trying to be around them more and be in their life, you're going to say things or do things that you shouldn't, and they're going to do the same to you. But that's normal. That is what is required. We're imperfect people, but we're meant to be around people and to grow with them. So don't be discouraged about that, but lean into an opportunity to grow. Lean into an opportunity to extend forgiveness as Christ has forgiven us, right? When someone has hurt you, look to clear that up and offer them forgiveness that we didn't deserve the forgiveness we've been offered and we want to extend that, right? And also when you've hurt someone, it, it might be hard to admit to it and ask for forgiveness, but God really wants to grow you through that. And I think it just, it happened a lot for me in living with roommates and just worked that muscle. It's really not easy, but lean into that and practice forgiveness in your life. So just now take one minute on your own and fill out this living it out last row in your table, think about some ways that you could begin to live this out with your roommates. Just take a minute by yourself and write some things down. <laughs> you guys are trooping it out doing a great job Pre appreciate the attentiveness through the cold um, all right so now we're going to transition to our final kind of relational category everybody's favorite authority yay <laughs> oh. <laughs> so um yeah so authority that's what it is so um there's a lot that we could discuss when it comes to authority but Hands down, my favorite verse, I feel like it just sums it up so wonderfully out of authority, is Hebrews 13, 17. So we're going to unpack this verse. We're going to go phrase by phrase, kind of unlock the truth that's in it. And 
When I say authority, what I really mean is anyone who God has placed over your life to influence you, guide you, lead you, protect you, teach you, kind of anything like that. This can be professors, um, this can be police, this can be ministry leaders, older family members, lawmakers, pastors, life group leaders, etc. Just kind of overall authority, whether directly spiritual or not. It's kind of authority in general. So we're going to unpack Hebrews 13, 17. So how does this verse start? Have confidence in your leaders. Confidence. Another way that that could be said is trust, trust the judgment of your leaders. Now, there's an issue here. It is much, much easier to read a psalm, as Sam said, written by David in difficult situations. Realize that God made the heavens and the earth in all of its perfection and glory and, and wonder and say, God, I trust you. I trust your judgments. I'm confident in who you are. I'm here to follow you. But that's not the case with human leaders, is it? I don't really know anyone who's done quite that. One of the hardest pills to swallow as it relates to authority is God will only ever use imperfect leaders in your life. If, whenever you detect a flaw, you run for the hills, you will never follow anyone. It is so common to have confidence in a leader, see them make a mistake, recognize a flaw, and then throw all that confidence away. That's it. But God will use imperfect leaders, only imperfect leaders, in your life in a mighty way. So the second part of this verse says, and submit to their authority. So, you know, in the Bible, I feel like as soon as the word submission comes up, we're immediately like, all right, flip through the pages, all right, find the exception. You know, where do we not need to submit? You know, oh, oh, I actually learned that uh, in the Greek, the word submit actually means do whatever you want, so we can just kind of do whatever we want and stuff. It's like, no, 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 no. Submit. Rest the individualism. Rest the will and follow your leader. So the hard part about this is that within scriptural limits, the Bible actually compels us to follow our leaders even if we disagree with them. Um... Because submission, only when you agree, is not submission. It's just going in the same direction. You just happen to be going in the same direction as your leader. So just like how the true test of having confidence in your leader, do you have confidence in your leader, kind of arises when you observe a genuine flaw in that leader, what you do, how you respond, when you genuinely disagree with the leader's decision, illustrates and is that true test of whether you believe this part of that this verse is true that you should submit to their authority and the good news is that in my opinion the next part of this verse kind of helps out with that kind of makes the pill a little easier to swallow so the next part of the verse says because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account so here's a spiritual truth that you you may or may not realize i'm not sure when those who are granted authority on this earth, in any form that that may take, pass away and they see God face to face, God is going to ask for a full account of the, of the decisions that they made and how they treated people and the words that they spoke and how they reacted to circumstances. God's going to ask for a full account. So now if you've ever been asked to lead something, I hope that that is an unbelievably sobering thought. And it is for me. But if you're asked to follow, the good news is that 
the impetus and like the weight of the effects of decisions made is not ultimately on you. It's on the leader. So you don't need to rise up, take the reins, rebel, make sure your way goes forth because God will ask for an account. And this helps immensely, in my opinion, when submitting to authority. So as an example, I serve on the teardown team at church. And there were some decisions made as to how teardown is going to be done that I just didn't agree with. I thought we could do it in a different way, more optimal. And so in a kind and respectful manner, I brought it up to the leaders. They heard me out. They were very kind about it and respectful, but continued to press on towards like the same way as doing teardown as originally. And it just kind of weighed on me. Like, gosh, I just, why don't we do it in a more optimal way? Until I realized, you know, one day God's going to ask them for an account of how teardown went, not me. And so I was like, all right, off to work. <laughs> I don't, it's not up to me. Um, it's in God's hands, you know, not me. And, you know, all joking aside, it's an important truth to remember. Anyone in authority always has a higher authority, God himself, to whom they will eventually report. So it just kind of frees you up there to just follow, knowing that the weight of the effects of decisions is not on you. The next part of this verse is, do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. So now let's jump right into the next fill in the blank there. Give a second if anyone needs to catch up. As a follower, your job is to figure out what brings joy to your leader and then do that very thing. Now I'll give you a free tip. All right, you could pay me later for it. This verse says, do this so that their work will be a joy. Well, what is this? The first part of the verse. The, the first two things we just touched upon. So specifically, trusting their judgments and following and submitting wholeheartedly. All leaders will appreciate that very much. I'm sure that they will. But if you want to take it up a level, if you kind of want to take bringing joy to your leaders from like a JV to like a varsity, you need to get to know your leaders a little bit more deeply. So some leaders are very task-oriented and they just absolutely love it when they ask you to do something and you take care of it, you complete it end-to-end -end, and you communicate primarily about the task at hand and kind of minimize all other conversations. Now, some other leaders are much more people-oriented and kind of love it when you pause on the task, take some time out of your busy day to reach out to them, encourage them, grab a cup of coffee, and spend some time in small talk shooting the breeze. They feel very loved by that. It brings them immense joy. So figure out what brings joy to your leaders and do that very thing, starting with the first two parts of this verse. And now we're getting to the end of this verse, and we also get to why I love this verse so much. Because although it focuses primarily on the leader for the beginning and middle sections, it actually ends with you. The last part is referring only to you, to you potentially making the lives of your leaders a burden by acting in such a way that you rob them of their joy to lead you. The verse says, do not do that. Why? For that would be of no benefit to you. The Bible's like, why would you do that? What, what benefit do you gain from making it tough on those um, who are leading you? You know, what privileges, promotions, perks, what does it get you? Does it get you an attaboy? Nope, it won't. The unfortunate result is that over time, no one's going to want you on their team. And if no one wants you on their team, it's only a matter of time until no one wants to be on your team. And so 
At the end of the day, loneliness is the only reward for a rebellious lifestyle. It's just going to be you. It brings no benefit to you. So bring joy to your leaders there. So let's read this verse all together in unison as a very cold but very engaged group. Um, so just not the parts where it's like, you know, kind of the, just like the parts where it says like, you know, words of the actual verse, not the truth. So let's read it all together at the same time. All right. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. All right, that's all we have for you guys. Um, so we can kind of pause there and let you guys digest some notes and we have some time for some questions, I'm pretty sure. And if you need to get warm and stuff, we totally, totally get that. <laughs> you can keep it in case there's any questions. Oh yeah, question. That's a great question. So that's the key. There's a hard attitude in Christian challenges that says, follow your leaders within scriptural limits. So just like how your leaders will eventually report to God, like so will you in a lot of ways for the decisions of your life. And so that's the ultimate authority. And so you align your life with them. And if a leader is asking you to kind of step out of that, you need to in a very respectful, generally one-on-one -on -one manner first, and then kind of opening up to more people if there's no responsiveness, kind of like stick on the path that God has for you. But with that said, um, it also requires wisdom because there's some stuff that's like, people kind of interpret scripture and like, this is not within scriptural limits. And it's like, oh yeah, it kind of is, you know? So um, that's the only thing I'm, I'll caveat with that is it's delicate, it's tough. Um, it definitely requires wisdom and also requires knowing scripture if you want to do within scriptural limits. Um, so. Have you had a situation where that's happened yet in your job? Um, honestly, no, it hasn't. There's, no, there's never been a time where I feel like I've had to sit a leader down and say, you know, you're causing me to um, like step outside of the comfort of my faith, kind of like where I'm comfortable being. And that, that's just why I want to caveat is like, it's not as frequent. Like unless you're kind of like hanging out with some sketchy people, like if you're kind of like in the, in like circles that are like really following God, it's not as common um, as maybe the news might like make you think, um, in my opinion. Um, so I actually, I actually have not. I've never had to interact with that. Um, good question, though. I know your dad is a off police officer, so I'm sure he re likes it when people respect authority. But yeah, Alex. It's a great question. Um, if you have anything to say about that, feel free. But um, so I think like, for example, like how did I choose Christian Challenge? You know, like kind of choose that. You're almost choosing as you choose a ministry, you're choosing the people you're going to run with, your friends, potentially your roommates, stuff like that. But you're also choosing like who's going to be my leaders. You know, you're kind of choosing that. And so 
when I was first coming to USC as a freshman, there was a lot of groups that were like kind of like hangout Christian groups. Like we're going to hang out together, have a lot of fun. And then like, all right, see you next week. And we'll do some more hanging out. And I was like, all right, I've done that. I'm ready to take it to the next level. Like I'm ready to really like walk with God, get to know scripture and like have this be my whole life. Um, that's, that's what I was really ready for. And so I chose my leaders um, based off of that. Another thing, um, I, there's a kind of like a Christian fair at USC, like a kind of a row of Christian leaders. And I asked each group, I was like, I was like, I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste your time. So I'd ask them, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the, is the only way to come to a true relationship with God? And if they were like, oh, well, this and that, I'd be like, all right, take care. I'm going to keep going. I was like, you can believe what you want. I don't believe that. I don't have time to not be, to be with, you know, a group that doesn't believe that. So kind of ask some low hanging fruit questions, kind of narrow down the group and then chose challenge because they were focused on discipleship building rather than just like hanging out and stuff. So yeah, do you have anything to say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And to bounce off of that, just like within a group, thinking of people that you might want to spend more time around, someone that you look at their life and you want to emulate that. And that also they have things on the money that you don't like, I, I need to get around them to teach me that. And often I find like connecting with people that really aren't wired like me, mm -hmm. like they might have some of the same hiccups, like hangups that I have. So someone who's different can help me to grow in that while also someone who's similar can help me to learn how to build up my strengths too. So both of those are valuable. Even as a funny story in that, like when I first became a freshman connection leader, I was with Jeremy, Josh, and this guy named Jack, like three, like high responsibility gene, get the task done like people, you know, and I'm not that way at all. And so like, I would always feel like they're like talking like, Ooh, what you get done today? Oh, like, I got this done today. Oh my gosh. Like I can get this done. Oh, get this done for me. Okay. You know, they just love like taking care of the task. And meanwhile, I was just dropping stuff left and right. Like, Hey, Romano, bring this, forget to bring it. Hey, prepare this, forget to prepare it like all the time. So I really learned from those guys. It was hard in the beginning, but I learned like how to be a dependable, responsible man and not just like a fun man. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Great question. Yeah, with that awareness, like I said, I think it's just super easy to not be around them. So like planning dinners, planning maybe even to get outside of the home with your roommates or being there, like, I mean, don't bother them too much, but like involve yourself in your roommates' lives. Like I was saying, like, just very practically, like my roommates would often have their doors closed, like knock on their door and just check in on how they're doing. Um, and then I think like learning how to ask good questions too is really important um, that you could just kind of check in surface level, I guess, or um, as you spend more time around them, you'll get a sense for who they are and understand their wirings and what they're, what's going on. But you also want to ask some of the right questions to see how they're doing yeah that makes sense yeah one thing it brings to mind is like at, at Bonsala where I know you live now like when I was living there we had two guys 
one would like view the meetings like kind of weekly meetings that's also a great idea is doing like a weekly kind of roommate thing and be like i've been looking forward to this all week like all my friends are here let's sit down how are you guys doing and stuff and the other roommate would time it and so we'd keep a timer like you said it was a 45 minute meeting i'm setting a timer for 45 minutes as soon as it's over and literally it would ring he'd stand up and he'd walk out of the room and just get out of there so like highly like this is a task I'm getting it done and one guy's like tell me everything about your life so um being a bridge between people like that that's what i try to be like what is the need of this person what is kind of like igniting his heart what kind of ignites this other guy's heart and like bridging those people and if you guys have any other questions on any of the four categories I think we have some more time, it seems. So. Do any of you want to share some takeaways that you've got? Any thoughts so far from any of the four relational categories? I thought the last thing about um, rebellion results in loneliness was really interesting and there's like as you said it my like mind went like so many things we struggle with but we wouldn't think that the root is that I'm a rebellious person mm-hmm. you know so it's like it's like there's all these like symptoms of loneliness that are circling and the it's not always the case that one root might be you just need to be someone to follow your leader and then these things you're struggling with that are causing all these problems for you go away because you're yeah. Wow. They agree with you too. <laughs> awesome. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. <clears throat> Actually, Ramon. <laughs>